Welcome back to Product 30, the series where I'm on a mission to uncover what it takes to build highly successful products. In this episode, I interview Alex Lemke, co-founder of Connect Earth, an API product that enables financial institutions to use Carbon Footprint Insights to build products and features for climate conscious consumers. After going through the startup incubator Entrepreneur First, Alex and his co-founder have successfully raised $1.8 million to fund their venture and to continue partnering with some of the world's biggest financial institutions. In the next 30 minutes, we discuss how Connect Earth started, how they build experiences that engage customers to take action on their own carbon impact, the challenges of closing their first client, and now building and scaling their team. This is a really good episode. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll speak to you soon. Everyone, welcome back to the Product 30 podcast, where I'm on a mission to uncover what makes highly successful products, sharing insights from founders, product managers, creators, and technicians on their journey to create exceptional customer experiences. Uh, today, I'm joined with Alex. Uh, Alex and I go back a few years. We knew each other at uni. We've actually done a podcast before uh, for one of his many ventures, but today we're going here to be talking about his latest venture, um, which is Connect Earth, and they've just gone through their pre-seed uh, funding and raised one point eight. There we go. Eight. I was about to say seven. One point eight million. Um, but yeah, Alex, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'd be love to get a bit of an intro and and hear about what you've been up to with Connect Earth. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Um, good to see you again. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to quickly introduce myself as well. So I'm from Germany, as you can probably tell from my accent. <laughs> and uh, I, I came to the UK six years ago where I met Bailey at uni, at Warwick Uni, obviously. Six years, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, initially got in the startup scene through the whole kind of society network at Warwick. A lot of our mates, you know, common kind of friend group are kind of in startups or funding startups or building startups. So it's a really, really cool community and we all still hang out. Um, really, my background is primarily in fintech. So I, you know, kind of freelanced or worked part time for a fintech company in London um, during uni, had a short stint in, in kind of blockchain for a couple of years where I built my own kind of localization agency, which was a great way to build connections to different fintechs, which I still use today quite a lot, actually. And what I learned back then, all the mistakes I made, um, back then, uh, I'm trying to avoid now. <laughs> so it's been it's been a great great ride, and and I mean yeah. And then I got into Connect Earth and I guess climate tech just under two years ago, when I joined the program called Entrepreneur First, which many of you listening might be aware of. I'm happy to uh, speak more about that as well. But yeah, um, Connect Earth essentially should I introduce them. The company now yeah or? go for it i mean yeah we, we can dive <laughs> we can dive into the background i think it'd be good to hear about a bit of the journey with ef as well but yeah it'd be good to get the 30 the, second uh, the elevator pitch of connector yeah i mean at connect earth i guess fundamentally what nick uh, my co-founder and i um saw was that there was a missing infrastructure to build climate products um kind of there was no go-to basically a, a, no kind of quality go-to source of, of data and, and tech and tech infrastructure to mm. build a climate product and a climate product basically is any product which um, contains or embeds climate insights. Could be a new product which exists for the purpose of climate mitigation or education, like a B2C app or a carbon accounting company. Or it can be an existing product which integrates things like a banking app or logistics software or a procurement software that integrates you know, carbon footprint insights. So at Connect Earth, what we're doing is we're building an infrastructure. So think of it like you know the the plaids for carbon, uh, mm -hmm. like the building the rails for sustainability data. And um, what we do essentially is collect data on thousands of companies, and, and products and other environmental things, um, and we package the data into a simple API, 
We're building various APIs, but our but our core API is a carbon footprint API, which takes spend-based transactions from bank accounts or accounting softwares or anything really with a spend-based transaction ledger and converts that into carbon footprint insights. Um, and I guess our main customers really are, are banks. So for example, we, we have, have a POC with Raiffeisen Bank, one of the biggest banks in, in Central Eastern Europe. We also work with neobanks like Cogni in the US. We work with uh, climate tech companies and we're increasingly also working with carbon accounting firms. So um, that's just kind of high level what we do. There's obviously much more mm. to it. You know, and, and our vision is just that every product will be a climate product by 2030 and we want to be the ones powering that movement. And how, I'm sure you get this a lot just from friends and family and I, I've certainly got it when I've talked to friends this week and people at work about, oh, what well, you know, I was recording this podcast the weekend. How do you explain, like, what is it that the end customer sees? What is it that they're going to see and what is it that your product enables? So I guess kind of looking at the problem that exists right now, I think if you look at climate data, um, the, the truth just is that many people just don't care. Uh, enough to be able to, you know, download their own app to track their carbon footprint. Often it's a blame game. It's mm. like, okay, what do I do? How do I improve it? Um, you know, what what is this? What does four kg of CO two mean? Like, I have no idea. It could it could mean an airplane. It could also mean buying an apple. You know, um, and there's so many different statistics for you know the average carbon footprint of a person. Um, a month in the US that's 1.4 tons uh, but there's different sources which say 1.3 1.5 over here it's less than the US surprise mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the car culture over there obviously contributes yeah, to that yeah, definitely. Um, but really what we see is that there's a big um, issue in the space right now where user engagement is limited and the reason why is because the experience of understanding your environmental impact is not directly linked to um, the products themselves and they're just kind of random these integrations um, and what really what what the what the challenge is, is to kind of weave in that user experience in a way that it's organic and that mm. it's, that it's intuitive right so um, instead of just uh, showing the carbon footprint if the if it's a neobank for example then you might show the carbon footprint and offer green rewards mm. alongside a reward system or gamify it or benchmark you against your friends or use it as a way to, you know, save money and then top up uh, in the case of, you know, PFM solutions, for example. So it's not just enough to show the carbon footprint. It's also important to basically empower the user to take action instantly and, and do something about it. Um, just like with bigger banks, uh, there's more traditional customers. In many cases, you can, for example, cross-sell these customers into ESG investing. So it's just a way for mm. our customer to engage their users and then use that platform as a way to empower the user to take a certain action and you have to link it to financial rewards for the user to social rewards for the user and that's really where we come into play where there's no one one way to do it and that's where the api helps because we can shape the user experience much better so i can speak a bit more details or or give some examples in a sec but that's kind of the challenge that Mm -hmm. we're trying to solve and also the last thing is that it's much easier to engage a customer and actually raise climate awareness if you go to where the customer is, right? Uh, downloading B2C apps, many of these experience lots of churn because the number one thing that we see is that there's a huge focus on carbon offsets. And often how these apps monetize is by taking a fee on the carbon offsets. Mm. But, you know, less than five, four, three percent of users actually offset. Um, and there's no other alternative to actually really adjust your habits apart from vague recommendations. Um, so what we do is we take away that monetization incentive because we're B2B. We don't have to monetize the mm. user itself. We don't actually monetize carbon offsets for various reasons. Um, but that's that's kind of our incentive doesn't lie in that. Our incentive lies in optimizing user experience for our customers, which then optimize user experience for, mm. for their users, right? And that's that's the kind of the beauty of it that we can see. 
And was it, so obviously you're working with a few different banks and I, I know that you're sort of building up some proof of concepts now. Was the sort of direction from the bank driven that they've gone, okay, we actually have climate change goals ourselves, right? That's been driven from policy and government and they're going, okay, how do we engage users with it? Or is it more so, as you mentioned, that kind of, that cross-sell into going, okay, one of the big things that consumers are buying at the moment are more ESG funds. They're tr- they want to be more conscious, but they don't know how. So how can we engage users? Let's go with Connect Earth because they've already built out something that's going to do something for us. It really depends, I think. Um, so you have, on one end of the spectrum, you have those companies which are kind of optimized for this sort of solution from an engagement perspective. So, yeah. uh, you know, neobanks that focus on Gen Z or often you have neobanks spinning out of big corporates that want to capture a younger audience and compete with all these neobanks. Um, or you have mid-tier banks which, are, which, which fear... Uh, the loss of certain customers in the US, for example, many community banks or credit unions that are suddenly being eaten up by all these challenger banks. Mm. Um, they see it as a way to differentiate, um, firstly, but also basically give the customer, their customer audience, their 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 target audience, something which they care about. You know, there's many stats on this. I think a, a report by Deloitte said that, you know, something around 70% of users want this feature. Not sure exactly which region it was for, but, but um, you know, there's something around that. So it's a big, it's a big thing that customers want. Um, and the other end of the spectrum, what you have is, is the image side of things, right? So there's some banks um, that, that, on the one hand, make it part of the net zero strategy. And it's, it's two things. The first one is that it's, it's an image thing, definitely. I mean, obviously it is, like, let's not kid ourselves. It's, it is something which just makes the bank look like they care. And by doing it, they do care. A lot of development goes into it, right? And what we say is that that's great, but like, just do it right, you know? Like, mm-hmm. and, and that's where we say it has to be data-driven, which is kind of one of our biggest strengths. It has to be engaging, it has to be intuitive. Um, and it can't be vague. You can't just say something's green, you know, without it mm-hmm. actually being green. You can't greenwash per se, right? So. So that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. We support these companies, and what we also tend to do a lot is we, we're not just our product, right? We also tend to work with our customers to introduce them to the right providers. So we have, for example, a carbon offset provider, and if they want to have a different one that's not as, as you know, their local carbon offsets, we can introduce them to them, and we can introduce them to carbon accounting firms for internal carbon accounting. We can almost act as like a, mm. a broker in the system um, through that one connection, which is really interesting. Nice. Well, I, would, I want to jump back to you know probably well as you said you start the journey you know two two years ago 18 months ago that sort of time yeah. time span um maybe you could talk through a little bit about like the journey of ef how connect earth actually came to be because i know your co-founder nick right yeah um was actually the one that was already sort of had an idea in this space so talk us through i guess like what i suppose what entrepreneur first or ef is um and how you found that process and where you are now i guess yeah no for sure so um i'll just quickly give a brief of where I was kind of two years ago. So I was working in EdTech, um, education technology, so very different space. And I feel like EdTech was, was awesome, is awesome. I just felt like the space wasn't moving fast. So mm-hmm. I kind of quit my job around, you know, just, just under 20 months ago, I think, or oh, pretty much 18 months ago, actually, um, left the company. And I was already reading into climate change and the whole, you know, kind of found, you know, found myself during COVID, <laughs> like <laughs> went in this kind of uh, rabbit hole of reading through, yeah. you know, how messed up this whole situation is and, and try to kind of find some 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 inspiration from that. 
but I still kind of, for the time being, I basically was consulting football teams on like how to help their athletes with their career transition. So like something which is like, was super, I was passionate about, which had nothing to do with climate tech. So it's not like I was in climate tech for like mm. the last 10 years. Like, and that's what I want to say as well. It's like a very easy space to get into, you know, it's very early and, you know, if you have the right people around you, it's, it's fine, fine. But I was still into it and I just was kind of doing um, this, this, this thing, um, the consulting whilst I was waiting to go into EF and EF stands for entrepreneur first I was basically six months I got in in November so it's six months of just like you know reading and you know I had to somehow wanted to just make some money on the side and that's kind of why I did the whole football thing but that gave me an opportunity to also just like spend some time preparing for the program and entrepreneur first what 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 the company what the what the program does is that it's almost like um, an incubator to an extent so typically what you have as a co-founder is, you know, either you're really motivated, but you don't really find someone else who is like, you know, it's not really often that you find someone who's willing to quit their job, spend six months ideating an idea, which is like zero revenue and, and then like pitch to investors for another year and like, for like half a year and then hopefully raise something, you know, and like the stats don't really show that like, it's very promising, you know, like most startups don't raise. Mm. So what EF does is that they take away that risk from you. So you almost apply like to a job. And they go through an interview process and they try to figure out if you're a good founder. And there's kind of three types of founders. The first one is a, is a domain founder, which, you know, someone who might have worked in a, you know, algae like kind of stuff for like mm -hmm. 10 years. Uh, that's a domain founder and they can bring a certain domain edge and like give that potential insight into what that new innovation could be, which could lead to a unicorn. And we have people like that in the program. The second domain is um, or the second, sorry, area is tech edge. Um, which means that there's someone who, who's just very good in like tech mm -hmm. stuff, whether it's hardware or software, mostly software and machine learning, um, who can build things. And the third one is a catalyst, which basically is just a term for saying like a generalist person who doesn't really know what they're good in, but they can just sell well and raise money and, and build the business and just get people on board of the mission. And that's me. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have any deep tech skills. I have no domain tech skills per se. But I'm just a very ambitious person, and like yeah. I just think you that get I'm, it done. Yeah, exactly. Just get it done. Yeah, it's just like you just set goals and you just overachieve them. Mm. You know, that's kind of the mentality I have. Like you set goals, but you try to overachieve them. Um, so when I joined the program, you obviously are in touch with all of these different individuals. You speak to you know PhDs in certain areas. Like you speak to people. A lot of people in crypto were there. A lot of people in like biotech, medtech. But really, when I met Nick, you know, Nick is like he graduated from uni like I think a year before the program or something and similar to me you know very similar stage mm -hmm. uh, just you know I think he's a year younger than I am but like very similar age and and he had that same kind of hunger but he was just like one of the most talented people I met like in terms of tech he just mm. sat down and just coded and just like got stuff done like built a website in an hour and just like just validated things and, and got you know helped us in the commercial side tech side product side and that's what EF gives you. It gives you that access to that one person that potentially can change your life, which is what happened mm. with, with me. And so, so going through the programs, you're at this point where you've met Nick, you, you guys have clicked, you've kind of realized that you feel like you're going to be a good match. Mm -hmm. um, how did the idea come about? And I guess what were those first three to six months looking like in terms of the work that you were actually doing to, to validate that idea? Yeah, so we, we knew we, we liked climate tech. Um, we had some ideas outside which we looked at and, and you know they, they all, we also got a bit of traction but like primarily you know we, we just always got back to the topic of climate tech and and I think one thing we looked at was that the space first of all was, is still super hot right I mean 
we're at the very early stages still. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, there's the odd kind of exit, like Planetly, which sold for like, I think a hundred million to, I think it was one trust and you have like the first exits happening and stuff, but it's still very early. And like mm -hmm. investors are, many funds don't actually invest in climate tech yet, you know? And I think what that means is that there's still a lot of opportunity, but that there's a lot of copy and paste in this space. So when you look at a startup, one thing fundraising, what we saw later was that there's many ideas which are just very similar. There's like mm -hmm. many carbon accounting firms and like us, many API firms. But one thing which we saw which didn't exist was in-depth data products. Like we saw that there were APIs that were based on like so-called category level emission factors and emission factor is something which you multiply times a certain figure, like mm. for example, you spend to get the amount of kilograms of CO2 of that transaction, but they were mostly based on very vague kind of industry level emission factors, which limited engagement because if you go to Aldi or, um, you know, just Tesco, it would yeah. look the same. So we saw that issue as users and Nick previously built a B2C carbon footprint app and, and saw that. Um, the second thing we saw was that we didn't want to build a business that was based on carbon offsets. We felt like carbon offset market, first of all, there were great players. And we, for example, partner with Patch, who are, who are awesome. They, they're an API. They, they think they think they raised from like big funds like Andreessen Horowitz, etc. Um, and, and, and they basically build an API to just embed carbon offsets. So we thought that that was not really where we would sit, but mm. we'd engage with them. And also offsets are really hard to verify and, and it's it's sometimes a bit of like a difficult thing for many end users. So what we kind of saw was that we want to build a data driven product and we want to collect data and build fundamental engagement tools that use real emissions data on real companies and products to drive customer habits. That was kind of the start. And then what we did was we spoke to many customers. So we spoke with fintechs, with banks, and what we saw was that they were all really keen to engage their users with sustainability, but didn't know how to. And because in many cases they had spend-based transactions, you know, most of the emissions of a customer comes from, or of an individual comes from what they buy, right? Mm -hmm. There's not much more. You can see utility statements, coffee you buy, you know, the petrol you buy, etc. Mm -hmm. So what we just initially tried to do was just understand like what the engagement features were that they wanted. And we then kind of iteratively thought that it would be an API that would solve this because we would just, instead of building a central app for this, we would just kind of empower everyone else to embed it. And, you know, we signed think three or four uh, LOIs within a couple of weeks at EF and that was enough to get funding and then from there we obviously you know just continued and mm. and just the product is still not you know where we want it to be in like the next five years but it's it's enough to you know close big customers mm. and, uh, and talk to me about that ooh, that process of where you were signing that first client how hard was it to get over that line and what did you have to do yeah, you know, I think um, it's a very good question because we we also sent out a lot of emails and it took us like some time to convince mm -hmm. them. I think what really helped was that personal relationship. So I think not being too intense of like, this is like the next like big thing, you know, like, just like kind of just having an organic conversation mm -hmm. using kind of existing studies to show how stability can influence users like HSPC, Deloitte, they all had studies that, mm. that did that. And we just used that as a way to convince them. So we didn't necessarily have to do our own research. Like we did, but like we just said that, you know, it even helped to have these big names in their studies to basically convince them. The second thing was also that we looked for customers that were probably most likely to buy this. So for example, in Cogni's case, which was I think our first customer um, or one of the first ones, they 
they have an, an Gen Z audience and they, they were early stage and they're, you know, high growth and they want to differentiate and offer their Gen Z customer something which is which is engaging. Mm. Um, so they were like an optimal customer because, you know, we could learn a lot from them and, and we could we could give them a lot as well. And it was a, it's a very good relationship we have where we took them on board and, and co-developed the feature with them. So we said that, like, we just took away some of the risk and we just took even on some of the tech costs, most of the tech costs and said, we'll build this feature for you. All you have to mm. do is integrate it. And like that, we built the feature in a way, the backend in a way that's reusable based on the feedback. And now we're just constantly improving our API. And I think what we did there was just really, we removed the cost with to build the product anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, we had it built, but we just improved it uh, as with our customer, um, our first customer to be able to just learn along the way of like, you know, there's many things that you don't, don't know mm-hmm. before you do it. I mean, it sounds like a really important way of like building those B2B to C products, right? If you have no clients at the start, right? you run the risk of burning through a lot of your cash and yeah. just building a product that no one's going to end up wanting. So if you can find that key partner, say, look, here's, you know, here's the way that we can sort of structure this. So it's de-risking the deal for you. So if it doesn't work out, you know, we've still built our product, but it doesn't affect you. You haven't spent months of developer resource or cash on building exactly. it. Yeah. But also we need you to be hand in hand because the more you succeed, the more we succeed. Um, so I suppose moving forward, I guess, to sort of now, so you finished up the EF program, you and Nick, it maybe talk me through like, when was the first hire? And I guess where you're up to now, like how many people you, you know, have you got in the team now? And, and what are the plans, I guess, in the next six to 12 months, I say? Yeah, so Nick and I, um, around the time of EF, um, we, we raised like a small kind of, you know, round, you know, it's like, it was like 240,000 pounds or something, which is kind of part of this, this round that, mm-hmm. that you just mentioned through convertibles and like, and we just basically got on board enough money to hire, I think it was seven people, a lot of interns, um, but then we kind of subsequently promoted to, to people in the role. Cause especially in carbon data, there's, there's, you know, there's so and so many experts, right? You can mm-hmm. always like outsource certain knowledge, but like you need people to get to know the data. The best people were like talented mm-hmm. grads who just love the space and build stuff. So we looked for that. Um, so EF finished in September and we made our demo day. So EF is six months, three months is building, pitching to the investment committee at EF. And then afterwards, three months, they call it launch, which is basically where you prepare for demo day, which is where you record a video that's three mm-hmm. minutes long. And, 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 and then you have a hundred calendar invites from VCs and, and, you know, 95 mm-hmm. reject you, but that's a different story. <laughs> and then <laughs> you fundraise, you fundraise through that process. So it was kind of this balance of hiring. Um, my, my personally as a, as a founder and CEO, like it was this thing where I had to hire, I had to fundraise, I had to make sure that like we were going in the right direction. And Nick's job was to build the product, to hire Mm. and to incorporate those, those people we hired into the product development. So we hired seven people, uh, full time. I think it was only two, three, sorry. And then, um, three, uh, you know, four more kind of part-time intern mm-hmm. interns um, and now we're 11 uh, every one of which is basically full-time uh, including the interns so I think we're like eight full-time and, and, and three interns right now um, and we're going to grow to 14 people by the end of May I think yeah 14 people precisely and yeah I mean hiring the team what we looked for was were people who were hands-on right people who were able mm-hmm. to get the you know get stuff done people who were able to um, also work independently and, and, and that was really important for the funding round, right? Because we just, we were able to iteratively show investors progress week by week on mm. the data collection side, on the product side, 
um, we built scrapers for like data and like these data just were getting better and we literally demoed them. <laughs> so we also used investor feedback to build our product, right? And it was really cool because it motivated us even more. We used that funding round as a way to just build faster. And that was a really cool thing because by the end of it, we actually had a, a really good product and, and mm. it's getting even better. So, Well, that, that's another interesting question because I think, again, one of the questions that's raised is um, the source of data for Connect Earth, right? And how you, let's say, let's say, if, let's say you signed up with Barclays, right? And Barclays connected with Connect Earth and I went to the coffee shop and I bought a coffee, how do I know that that data is like, Good. you know, accurate? And that I can say, okay, yeah, I know that it was, you know, there was this much, the coffee was flown over from this country and then processing yeah, yeah. in the warehouse or so on and so forth. So maybe talk me through, I guess, a bit of your data strategy. Because I could imagine that as time progresses and you collect more, it becomes more valuable. Yeah, so, you know, just to, to be honest on the, on the data side, so the truth is that in most banking transactions, for example, you don't see the products, mm. right? I mean, you just don't. Yeah. Um, and you can use things like Flux, which is another startup which breaks it down for you, and, and you can use digital receipt providers that you can scan, but fundamentally the 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 product data isn't shown, mm. um, you know, and, and, and we do have other use cases where we can show it, like with invoicing providers, for example, but like in this banking case, mm. you can't see it. So really what's important is that you have to innovate and be like, okay, what's actually most important here? And, and, and really important is that what we saw back then was that almost all providers, I think pretty much everyone just used the category data, which basically was a vague kind of calculation for you know, the carbon footprint of consumers and, mm. and didn't drive engagement. So what we did is we collected data on thousands of merchants and we update this data. And it's a mix of kind of three things and I'll explain to you why that's important. Um, the first one is that we look at the public domain, just like how Bloomberg or other companies collect the data. Um, so we, we actually look, we, we have a manual process of actually getting data and triple checking it. Um, and that's kind of what our data team is there for. Um, and we also have some kind of automated data collection involved in that as well through you know data science, mainly machine learning. Um, and then uh, the second way is that we are increasingly partnering with carbon accounting firms that create data on companies. Um, and the thing there is that the assumptions often are different. You know, the greenhouse gas protocol, which is kind of the, the, the protocol by which you have to report your emissions is quite flexible. It's like very, hmm. you know, you can interpret it in different ways and, and it's very flexible. So we have to understand the assumptions that go behind data collection. We collect data from them and often in return for us giving them data on our database. And it's a very low cost access for them because, you know, there's right now the data being sold directly is quite difficult um, and it's very expensive. And the third one is that we're increasingly seeing companies approach us to file data with us because they see the leverage that exists on our end, whereas one integration can lead to potentially millions of customers seeing that data. And if they aren't included, then they just don't look as good. So what we do is we take the merchant data. So we have something which empowers the consumer to differentiate which merchants are more or less sustainable. The data itself is super difficult because it's you know often very incomplete. Scope three emissions missing, so we work with you know PhDs and, and research groups across the world to basically build hybrid emission factors, meaning that these are emission factors which you know we are aware that the data isn't complete, and that's not mm. our fault. That's just like the way it is. That's a huge issue in the space, um, partly due to regulation. Um, so we are building hybrid emission factors for those merchants which we don't have enough data for, um, and if the data isn't good enough, we don't include them. Um, really the end goal there is to be able to then also get merchants to just report better data because it's in their own interest. So long story short, we use merchant data 
We use category data where we don't have a merchant. We use our own emission factors. I think right now we have 49 countries covered. Mm-hmm. Um, we have product data. We have, for example, the data on every grocery item in Germany. Like that's in, what we, we use it for different use cases, like digital receipts or invoices. Um, but in banking transactions, we are very transparent about that. And we, our goal is to just empower users to make better decisions. And part of that is also deciding mm-hmm. which merchants they want to support. That's the first step. And then as technology improves, we can also improve our product. Mm. I think over time, as as you said, it, it could be a market timing thing, right? Where, whereas where climate tech becomes more prevalent, the, the the infrastructure of payments, maybe transaction data needs to be more detailed, right? So then that you have room for fintechs like Connector to come in and add that layer going, okay, in within this transaction, I can see that you've paid for a coffee or you've paid for um, a microphone or whatever that is. And then you can get better approximations as, as we go along. Yeah, I think also one thing we do is that um, we also empower a user to, uh, you know, put in their habits. So, for mm. example, um, we have um, vegetarian, vegan, pescatarian people in our society, including myself. I'm a vegetarian. Um, so we take that into consideration with the calculations that significantly impacts um, the, the emission factor, which you multiply by the amount you spend at a certain merchant. And increasingly, we also have product data. So think of it like a tree, like a gra- like a tree almost, where you can almost like put your hand on one part of the tree, and just like blank out a part of like the products that lead to like the potential products you can buy. Mm. So your average just becomes more accurate because you kind of take out a certain chunk of products that you wouldn't buy as a vegan, mm. like dairy products yeah. or meat products. Yeah. So we just empower these averages to uh, we just make these averages better and empower the user to. See a difference. Mm. I think the important thing is to, to promote habits and see a difference. And that's that's the most important thing. And just showing the data, there's many studies about this too, already reduces emissions. Just, just showing it because consumers get more aware of it. And that's really what we want to achieve, right? And then as time goes by, as data gets better, we can offer much more bespoke products, you know, through network analysis, which is the mm. graph database we're building or, you know, retail and logistics and these areas are obviously all very, very important. But you have to kind of build the infrastructure first and the fintech side gives us a chance to build that um, and buy some time almost to be able to build our database in a, in a, in a great way and, and build the infrastructure. Perfect. Well, I've got I've just got one more sort of um, main question before we sort of wrap things up. I guess in, in these past uh, 18 months or so, what would you say has been the hardest thing about being about building a B2B API product, you know, what's the thing that's thrown you the most challenges along the way? And what have you learned from that that you would pass on to others? I think at the early stages, what we see is that um, you have one customer who wants a certain feature and you're like, we have to build this feature. <laughs> Make it a spike or like a story, you know, mm-hmm. like we have to build this feature. GRA gets, you know, kind of all mixed up. We build this feature. They don't buy it. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, it didn't work. Um, and then you never hear that feature again. And then mm-hmm. maybe two years, two months later, you hear the feature again. You're like, oh, we should have, we should have built this like better. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a thing where you constantly get f- different feedback from different customers. And also, especially in our case with banks and with fintechs, you don't really have a lot of input because it's just, it's just like big contract values, not many customers. Mm-hmm. So for our ch- for us, the challenge was to be able to get a significant amount of data to be able to prioritize what to build. So essentially what we're doing is that we use our current customers as a way to improve our data and we also look at competition. Mm. So we do have some competitors out there which are which are phenomenal also and, and same vision, market's big enough, we're all kind of coexisting and that's all great. We even speak to each other. So um, we look at competition, we look at um, how we can also be innovative ourselves, if we have data for mm-hmm. example. Um, 
But really the biggest challenge has been prioritizing what to build. And I think what we decided is to stay true to our vision. Like we were thinking of like building a certain standalone platform, for example, but we didn't do that because it would, it would just not fit into our API vision. Mm. Um, that's, I guess, the biggest challenge. And then also the team itself, you know, being on board with that. I think, especially when you look at, we just hired a, a kind of product lead, which which worked at Farfetch before, and, and he's worked with data products. And coming in, him coming in really gave us that fresh breeze of air that we needed, mm-hmm. where he just kind of takes these processes apart and and empowers us to actually build um, with a systematic approach, um, moving away from kind of MVP trying to get a funding yeah. round type thing to like a sustainable kind of product. So that's kind of the main challenge, and we we're, we're we're pretty much solving it quite well now. So it's good. Nice. Well, look, I've got just a few quick fires. Uh, I'm trying to remember, top of my head. Um, what three product companies uh, do you use that you think are best in class for one? Is there marketing? So that's the first one. Who do you think is a good brand that you you mm. look up to? Could be anything, right? For me, one of them's Huel. I think Huel's great. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, marketing is a good one. I think. Um, I mean, one that kind of almost annoys me is Monday.com. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know how, but like, I feel like they always get me. And like, and it's this thing where I'm just, it's such a simple product and I'm just seeing it day to day. Yeah. And I just feel like they always get me. I'm just like product marketing there is, is an ace. It's just so good. Um, tube ads. Yeah, tube ads. Like everywhere. I go Instagram. to work. I go on, I go on Instagram <laughs> and it's there. I go on LinkedIn and it's there. Like, I, it's just everywhere. Like on the tube, on, on buses. Yeah. Um, and is it, has it converted you are you guys Monday users uh, yeah we were <laughs> we were but like I think what we're doing is with our new you know kind of systems in place I think yeah. we're going to move it to a different platform but but I still think yeah, yeah it's just it's just still a great it's a great product so nice yeah. next one is which company is best or which product is best in class for their user experience so when you're actually using the product which one do you just think is so smooth mm. and so clean Connect Earth. I'm just kidding. No, um, um, I mean, I'm. The, I mean, I've been a Revolut user for ages, and like yeah. for me, it's been Revolut. Like yeah. I have to say, I is mean, there anything in particular that you think stands out? I mean, I feel like you know, they could personalize it more. I think, mm-hmm. but I do think that it just does everything I want. Like it's just, it just you know, it gives me financial review, it gives me cashback, it gives me flexibility because i have a german bank account like i just it's just simple it's just mm. like it just does what i want and it just gives me an overview it gives me it's like a financial super app and e- even things like i'm going to you know i'm going to a holiday soon to a country which needs you need like travel insurance for they even mm. have that you know like it's just everything and I, I just feel like it's just for me it's like the most important product i have and i use it every day multiple times you know maybe too much <laughs> but yeah but yeah well, maybe it links to the last one as well, um, but I'll ask for a different one. Um, which product has the best value, in your personal opinion? Ooh, um, well, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it would be Revolut, but I have to look at a different one. Um, Slack. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> That's a good choice. Slack, because, like, <clears throat> everything's built on their Slack, and, and, and with that notion... Yeah, I feel like um, those two because I think I mean they're very they're very much used in the same way and they have an integration and stuff. But I feel like Notion, for example, I mean Slack. Everyone kind of knows what Slack is, but Notion maybe not everyone. Notion <clears throat> gives you flexibility to build it, mm. and it gives you a structure and it gives you almost like a blank piece of paper which you can fill with with uh, 
whenever you want. And like just the just the value in itself, like our entire company is based on Notion. Based on Notion. So by definition, Notion is worth us to an extent because like everything's <laughs> on there. Everything. Um, same with Slack. So those two go hand in hand for me. I mean, I use them as you know, I use them every day. So nice. Uh, last couple of questions. Yeah. Um, well, this one I think would would be answered. What sector do you think will have a growing need for innovative products? Yeah, climate tech. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an obvious one. <laughs> um, any book recommendation for product creators? Anyone? Book recommendations? No. Actually, any? no. I did. I did read one. I forgot the name of it though. Um, oh, it was a really good book. I forgot it. I'll, I'll link it. Can you link it afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually. Uh, Jessica, who left our who left our team, she was our like a freelancer. Mm-hmm. She she joined us for six months, and she was so good to like actually you know just just she basically helped us build this, and and she gave me that book recommendation, and um you know she was she was just you know helping us in the early stages and stuff, and 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 she was really you know into this kind of subject, yeah. and, and and that book kind of just empowered me to see it from a different perspective. So okay, yeah. Well, you have to see it in the description on Spotify. So yeah, exactly. Um, then. I think we'll just wrap up with this last one. Um, yeah. Well, actually, two two more. This, this there's two good questions. What is the one thing about your job that you would love someone to solve a solution for? Um. Yeah. It's, it's. I mean. I mean, you can always say time, right? But like, that's I think a very generic answer. <laughs> but what about your time? Like, what is it that's taking up a lot of your time? You go if someone you know, just click their fingers and solve that. I think it's. I think it's the process efficiency between doing different things. I mean, that sounds so vague, but like, how do you, how do you, how do you structure your day or how do you structure your time in a way that like your mind is focused on one area at a time? Mm. Like right now, I mean, I try to do it with my calendar block hours, but it's just not possible. Like you always squeeze in meetings, like, you know, or, you know, I want to have time dedicated to hiring, time dedicated to operations time dedicated to fundraising strategy time dedicated to whatever seeing the team mm. like just having team meetings ops you know but i feel like it's all jumbled up and i think whilst that leads to being an insanely well multitasker mm. i think it just could be more efficient and i think especially on the weekends like you know i i just see that happen really well because like no one's there's no calls i just mm. I, i'm able to like focus on things so a product which would solve that for me would i mean that would probably save me hours a week of just mm. like inefficiency like inefficient processes well there you and go i'm german so we like efficiencies <laughs> <laughs> well anyone that wants to solve that problem uh, send alex a message on linkedin yes um and then the last one if you could have created any product what would you have chosen and why connect earth <laughs> good answer <laughs> nice alex thank you so much for taking the time any any things you want to plug or any last comments yeah i mean just follow connect earth on linkedin nice. <laughs> Cool. And um, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to reach out, um, have a chat about EF or, you know, anything really related to climate tech or just building products, I mean, happy to nice. have a chat or, you know, whether it's on LinkedIn or, or via Zoom or Meet. So. And keep an eye out for their um, new hiring posts as well, if there's any roles yes, out. Yes, so. exactly. Awesome. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Cheers, Alex. Cheers. Thank you so much.